0: The title of this evening's talk is Spiritual Urgency, or the Pali word is Samvega. What are the seeds that bring you to spiritual practice? What are the seeds that brought you to a retreat such as this particular one? So beginning our evening with a few questions, some of which have probably visited your mind and heart. These questions that humans have felt and have asked forever and ever, regardless of culture, regardless of history. These murmurings of the heart the deep questions and yearnings that have been going on in us as long as there have been human beings. What is life about? What is death, its significance, its meaning? Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? what do i need to be really truly happy and at ease in this life can i or how can i live gracefully peacefully in this life with all of the challenges and the difficulties within me and with all of the challenging challenges and the difficulties in this changing world with all of the challenges and difficulties within me and all around me? What is it that brings me to spiritual practice? And again, why am I here in this retreat right now? Our practice isn't about getting caught up and mulling or stewing over these questions. But rather these questions can be taken in as a motivating force and an inspiration towards connecting to and dropping more and more deeply into our practice. So as I've already mentioned, this evening's talk is about an urgency to awaken with the Pali term being samvega, which is most often translated uh, into English as spiritual urgency. But it's actually a term that's somewhat difficult to render uh, into English because it includes quite a number of different mind states. In the classical Buddhist texts, the force or the energy of samvega is spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice. And then the classical text goes on to say that samvega is also about one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice itself by what should move one, followed by the systematic effort of one so moved. So samvega is the urgency to practice and an urgency to awaken. And I think it's important at this point to note that it's an energy that's not at all fraught with any tense or frantic or obsessive quality. But rather it's a quality of mind, a quality of heart, that very often comes comes out of some degree of understanding the natural laws, understanding the way of things. Some degree of understanding how it is. So I'd like to look at this for a few moments. For some of you, Samvega may have been sensed or first felt as the endlessness of the round and round and round in daily life. Others of you have may felt a certain urgency through some degree of the perception of change the perception of impermanence, anicca. And in sensing and seeing and knowing mental and physical phenomena continuously arising and continuously disappearing in its gross and maybe also in some of its subtler forms. And the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. the death of someone close to us in our life can certainly move the heart towards the urgency to practice and to awaken. And for some of you, the sense of urgency or some vega may be experienced through feeling the enormity or maybe even the subtleties Of the physical and mental hardships and challenges in life. The suffering in life from this perspective, in general, in the the big picture, so to say. And maybe also more specifically through the various permutations of these experiences in your own life. For some the urgency to practice and the urgency to awaken comes from what might be a long, accustomed, or possibly a new sight in relationship to the mental pain felt in observing and directly experiencing oneself, the bias or judgment, judgment and prejudice in relationship to race or culture or economic circumstances or gender or age or sexual preference along with any of these experiences and the accompanying mental pain that you you may also have experienced a vague or maybe not so vague sense that it really doesn't have to be this way, that there's another way. And then had an urge to move towards that potential other way. When, when some vega first stirs us, it may be an emotional state that's somewhat difficult or disturbing until it finds a clear and healthy direction to connect to. One of the wonderful attributes of the stirring en- energy of Samvega is that it itself has the power to move us in a clear and healthy way towards finding a wholesome direction to connect to. I think that it's important to recognize and to acknowledge that continuing all along the way of our practice, all the years of our practice, samvega is an essential and motivating energy of successful practice. From my own experience, I would describe some Vega as an experience of being stirred and inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind process with the physical occurrences of aging being of primary inspiration at this point and by the phenomena that goes on in the world around me. Happenings that maybe I'm directly involved with in some way, or happenings that I'm simply an observer of, primarily an observer of, such as the great misunderstandings and confusions that are currently going on in the world, and the often violent reactions that are perpetrated from all sides because of this samvega is really the movement of the heart it's an inner response both within our formal meditation practice as well as outside of our formal practice times and for me it's the movement of my heart to let go deeper and deeper into my practice. It's this flavor of samvega that stirs and moves me again and again towards letting go, towards relinquishing the painful contraction, however strong or however subtle, of clinging to anything. When Samvega is present, it may sometimes be experienced as an ardency, an inspired heart-mind, a passion for spiritual practice, if you will. Something that I'm sure at least some of you, if not all of you, have felt at times. And at least, in part, maybe what brought you here on retreat, now. As a Dhamma teacher, your ardency and your sincerity in and with your practice moves and inspires me. And I think it's safe to say that This is true for all of the people that I've had the honor to teach with. This is really one of the wonderful aspects of all of us here together right now. It's one of the wonderful aspects of living in a practice community such as this, even if for just a short while. We move and we inspire each other to deeper and deeper levels of practice. So even more specifically from the perspective of the Dhamma, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing? And what along the way of our practice keeps urging us, keeps moving us towards sustaining and deepening our practice? there's a beautiful account of how Prince Siddhartha came face to face with what are called the four heavenly messengers while being driven in his chariot through the royal city after all of his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world. This account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. And maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphorical, considering that these four messengers, these four very common events of life, old age, sickness, death. And though not so common in our time and culture, the many and quite obvious truth-seekers that were so much a part of the time and the culture that Siddhartha grew up in. Maybe these four very common events of life have always been and will forever be undeniable aspects of living for all living beings. So, the story is not necessarily symbolic or metaphorical. Considering the possibility that the great and ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these very common aspects of life, much much more deeply than had ever occurred for him before. And to such a degree that he was urgently moved to leave the riches, the ease, and the comfort of his existence and to search for the true nature of life. He was profoundly touched during those few chariot rides by the overt physical and mental challenges and hardships, the suffering in life that he witnessed as he took in these four very common events of life. Siddhartha's story t- tells us that this young man was inspired and inspired and moved to be liberated inspired and urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and the very familiar habits of his life. And isn't it really the same for us? That most of the time, with the many, many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own life, both outwardly and inwardly, we've reacted. Reacted by maybe ignoring them or by distracting ourselves in myriad ways by where and how we spend our time. We've reacted by what we do to various manifestations of our aging bodies, or we've reacted by pretending or believing that something else is happening, until somehow, somehow, at least one of these messengers touches us so deeply that instead of reacting, we respond. And we respond, in fact, in a similar way as did Siddhartha, by me being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth and wisdom. We're somehow stirred at some point to walk a different path than constantly feeling overrun with sadness or anguish or fear, or by being much of the time tightly contracted with feelings of attachment or anger or confusion in relationship to the natural occurrences of life. Our closest surroundings are full of stirring things. Stirring in the sense of samvega. And if we don't generally perceive them as such, isn't it really because of our habits? The habits that maybe render our vision dull and our heart insensitive or reactive to some degree. And this can even happen in relationship to the Buddhist teachings. We may have encountered some very powerful times of intellectual, emotional or spiritual stimulation in relationship to the teachings and the practices. But at times even this impetus can lose its freshness and its compelling force as maybe some of you have experienced at times. So What's the remedy? The remedy for this is to constantly renew the freshness of the teachings and practice by just simply turning to the fullness of life within us and around us, which if we look carefully, Constantly illustrates what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths in ever-new variations. Illustrating the first truth of what suffering is, what it really is. Which, simply put, is the lack of any thoroughly sustaining deep satisfaction in relationship to our expectations and the natural unfolding regra- regarding the round and round and round and constantly changing nature of daily life. And if we continue to look carefully into the fullness of life within us and surrounding us, we begin to sense and see the cause the origin of this unsatisfactoriness, this suffering, which is the second of the Four Noble Truths, which again, put very simply, essentially is a clinging relationship to what can't be clung to. And the third truth, the third Noble Truth, the truth that, in fact, there is a potential end to this suffering. There's a solution to this predicament. And again, put simply, the solution being to not cling, but rather to see things utterly clearly and simply be with them as they are. And the fourth truth being the way of putting the solution into effect via the path, the path of practice offered by the Buddha, that in fact each of you are engaged in walking along at your own pace right here, right now, in this very life and in this very retreat. As any of you may have experienced, (coughs) sometimes quite unexpectedly, a degree of understanding of one or more of these truths can show up. So for instance, with what might be a fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear, anger, grief, yearning or clinging, and the self-identification that's embedded in each of these habitual reactive patterns. Or insight, wisdom, might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long, accustomed sight of some, maybe, manifestation of poverty or in relationship to a weeping child or in relationship to the distress of someone you regularly have some contact with or maybe in relationship to an unaccustomed connection with the physical or mental illness of a loved one or one's own illness or bodily discomfort or myriad other flavors of our human experience. With any of these experiences having the power to startle us, meaning to promote a reflective response and to stir up a sense of urgency in our resolve to sincerely and deeply practice this path, that leads to the cessation of suffering. Through seeing our own experiences of body, mind, and heart directly, clearly, and more and more subtly, we might be stirred and moved by seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, selfless, and impersonal nature of things, something that is, of course, very available for each of us all of the time. So, for instance, a moment or successive moments of directly and deeply experiencing and knowing the constantly changing nature of bodily sensations or mental states, or a moment of really sensing and knowing it's all impersonal. It's all anatta, the Pali word for not-self. Mental and physical phenomena just absolutely naturally arising, changing, and passing according to myriad interconnected conditions. With these moments of sensing, seeing, and knowing, we're often urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path, to go deeper towards the ending of suffering. Or, depending on circumstances may be to recommit to our practice samvega asks us we could say to step out of our everyday ordinary conditioned habits to step out of our conditioned inertia Each one of us have many stories, many experiences that come out of our pursuit of a spiritual life. And also, of course, many stories within our life as a whole. Stories that often exhibit this knowing and the manifestation of Samvega. It's often part of what I hear from students during practice interviews. There are a number of wonderful stories and dialogues in the suttas, telling of the Buddha's disciples being stirred up towards practicing with uh, a more vital spiritual urgency. And this stirring of being done by the Buddha himself, or the stirring being done by one of the arhats one of the enlightened disciples, or by one of the practicing devas. And for those of you that don't know or aren't sure what devas are, devas are beings whose practice has brought them to be dwelling for lengths of time in beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened, who aren't yet enlightened, aren't yet completely free of suffering there's a section of short suttas in the samyutta nikaya uh, the connected called the connected discourses in the woods where various woodland dwelling uh, devas approach certain monks certain bhikkhus who are practicing in those particular woodland thickets and so i'd like to share a few of these encounters on one occasion a certain Bhikkhu was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. And on this particular occasion, the Bhikkhu had gone to his spot in the forest for a day of practice. But all the while, kept on thinking thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. And the Deva speaking now to the Bhikkhu. Desiring seclusion you entered the woods. Yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove, man, the desire for people. Then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. And in this case, meaning not necessarily just sexual lust, but lust for things, for food, for various objects, for various experiences. And the deva goes on. You must abandon discontent be mindful let us remind you of that way of the good hard to cross indeed is the dusty abyss don't let sensual dust drag you down just as a bird littered with soil with a shake flicks off the sticky dust so a bhikkhu a yogi strenuous And mindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next dialogue takes place after the Buddha's parinibbana, after his death. And his closest attendant and cousin Ananda had been very strongly encouraged to attain full enlightenment, to attain arhantship, before the first Buddhist council convened, which was scheduled to begin during the next rains retreat. Ananda had gone (coughs) to the Kosala country (coughs) and entered into a forest abode to meditate But when the people who lived in that area found out that he was there, they continually came to him, lamenting over the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda felt that he had to constantly instruct them in the law of impermanence. The forest-dwelling deva that lived in that woodland thicket, aware that the upcoming uh, Buddhist council could succeed only if Ananda, attended it as a fully enlightened being, as an arhant, came to provoke and inspire Ananda to resume his meditation practice. And this is the sutta. On one occasion, the Venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalins in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, the Venerable Ananda was excessively involved in instructing lay people. Then the deva then inhabited that woodland thicket having compassion for venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking now. Having entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, having placed nibbana in your heart, meditate, Gotama. Now, because... Ananda was the Buddhist cousin. He had the same family name of Gotama. Meditate, Gotama, and don't be negligent. What will all this hullabaloo do for you? <laughs> then the venerable Ananda, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So I picked this particular dialogue because, though of course none of us are in the same position as Ananda was, Uh, we're certainly often quite caught up, quite seduced by the seeming necessity for us to engage in the hullabaloo of various circumstances, both externally and internally, and neglect or maybe even lose our practice and instead go for these things, all this baloo. To me, this little verse beautifully and very clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight and clear. Not to neglect, of course, what needs to be attended to, but to know when we're seduced unnecessarily, and maybe even inappropriately, into the hullabaloo. So, another verse. On one occasion, a certain bikuni was dwelling in Visali, in a certain woodland thicket. Now, on that occasion, an all-night party was being held in Visali. Then that bikuni, lamenting as she heard the clamor of instruments and gongs and music coming from Visali, recited this verse. We dwell in the forest, all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhuni, desiring her good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in her, approached, approached her and addressed her in verse. And this is the deva. As you dwell in the forest, all alone, like a log rejected in the woods, many are those who yearn for your state. A forest dweller, subsisting on alms food, with few wishes, content, many are those who envy you, as hell beings envy those in heaven realms. Then the bhikkhuni, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency." The next verse is regarding a a bhikkhu who continued thinking thoughts of ill will and harming as well as pretty potent thoughts of sensuality while he was practicing in the woods one day. The deva who also inhabited the same woodland out of compassion and wishing to stir up some vega in him spoke these verses to the bhikkhu. Because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way, and meaning, uh, careless way meaning having relinquished or having let go of attending to things as permanent as self and as desirable because they're pleasurable. Having relinquished the careless way, you should reflect carefully, meaning attending to their true nature, attending to the true char- their true characteristics uh, with a very careful attention, impermanence of these things, the not self-characteristic, and thus the unsatisfactoriness of, the na- of their nature. So having relinquished the careful way, said the deva, you should reflect carefully. And the deva goes on saying, by basing your thoughts on the teacher, in this case the Buddha, on the Dhamma, on the Sangha, and on your own virtues, you will surely attain to gladness and rapture and happiness as well. And then, when you are suffused with gladness, you'll make an end to suffering. Then the bhikkhu stirred up by that deva acquired a sense of urgency. <clears throat> the last verse that I'd like to share with you this evening um, is about a bhikkhu who after returning from alms round and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, this bhikkhu would go down to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. <laughs> when when the Deva who lived in that same thicket saw this, she thought, hmm, Having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him, thought the deva. So, out of compassion and wishing to stir up an urgency for the monk to practice with more diligence, the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows. And this is the deva speaking. The title of this uh, sutta, by the way, I like the title, so I'm going to tell you what it is. It's called The Thief of Scent. (laughs) And so the deva speaking. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given. This is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds, I do not take. I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers. Why one of such rough behavior, why is this one not spoken to? And the Deva responds, when a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to that one. But it is to you I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere's hair tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu responds to the deva. Surely, spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me. Please, O spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And the deva responds, and I found this the first time I read it, quite surprising, the deva's response. The deva says, we don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquires a sense of urgency. So, it seems that amongst those of us then and now, those of us over 2,500 years ago who were devoted to the teachings and practices of the Buddha and those of us right here, right now, it seems that maybe things haven't changed all that much. Our human predicament crosses time and cultures. The teachings really are timeless. The solutions that the Buddha offers to our karmic predicament the solution is as relevant today as it was in India when these verses were originally spoken. When some Vega is kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy, the Pali word being virya, and courage, that helps the development and the blossoming of faith, sada in Pali, and confidence, pasada in, Kali, in Pali. Each of these qualities, energy, courage, faith, and confidence, are essential in helping us to break through, for, break through what for some of you might be a sense of timidity or some degree of hesitation, or maybe fear, or doubt, or maybe some degree of complacency. The Buddha, countless times and in countless ways, exhorted his followers to arouse some vega. In speaking to a group of disciples, in one sutta he says, rouse yourself. Sit up. What good is there in sleeping, meaning the sleep of ignorance, the sleep of delusion? For those afflicted by disease, meaning the dis-ease of suffering, the disease of constant dissatisfaction. For those afflicted by disease, struck by the arrow of craving, what sleep is there? Rouse yourself, sit up. Resolutely train yourself to attain peace. Go beyond this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors to which most humans and most devas are attached and which they seek. Don't waste your opportunity. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of confusion and anguish." And the Buddha goes on to say, negligence is a taint and so is the greater negligence growing from it. By earnestness and understanding withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards life is about keeping one foot, so to say, out of the mainstream and on the ground, the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency. The Buddha was so confident in the solution he found to the predicament of the unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth, aging, and death, which is actually occurring moment to moment to moment in our life, breath by breath, that not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, we're also asked to engage in a moment-to-moment observation of the cycle and to be completely honest with ourself in the process. And the Buddha's confidence was so clear and strong that he called the reality of this unsatisfactory round the first noble truth, which from this perspective we could say is a gift that confirms some of our most sensitive and direct experiences of things. And then from the gift of this first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the true cause of suffering is, is not out there, not coming from some outside experience or some outside other being but that it's coming from in here. In here, in the craving and the clinging and the fear that's present in our own heart and mind. And then the Buddha, in his great confidence, and coming directly from his own experience, and often using himself as an example, confirms that there is an end to suffering. That there's a very available release from the cycle. And he offers us a way to that release by the development of particular noble qualities of mind, particular noble qualities of heart. Moral, ethical responsibility, sila, concentration, mindfulness, clear comprehension, energy, joy, happiness, tranquility, equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, faith, confidence. All of these qualities, these capacities, really sprouting out of the original energy of spiritual urgency that led us at one point to look for a solution to our predicament. Our predicament has a practical solution, we could say. A solution that's actually within the power of every human being. A solution that many of you here have begun to have a growing faith in, possibly in part through reading and studying the many stories the many teachings within the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses. But most importantly, that you've come to know out of your own direct experience, through your own practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates samvega and is also the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency. As our faith in the solution to our predicament grows, as it develops and as it deepens, for many of us, it, in a sense, is what gives us the energy to live. The last story I'd like to share with you this evening is maybe a somewhat unlikely one from the contemporary writer Annie Dillard. A story that I found to be very inspiring and that invoked quite a sense of spiritual urgency in me the first time that I read it many years ago. And that continues actually to move me every time I read it. These are a few excerpts from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie uh, Annie Dillard's book Teaching a Stone to Talk. I've been reading about weasels because I saw one last week. I startled a weasel who startled me and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I've never seen one wild before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruitwood, soft-furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes I didn't see any more than you see a window." The weasel was stunned into stillness as he was emerging from beneath an enormous, shaggy, wild rosebush four feet away. I was stunned into stillness, twisted backward on the tree trunk, our eyes locked and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else, a clearing blow to the gut. It was also a bright blow to the brain, or a sudden beating of brains, with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs, it filled the forest, moved the fields, and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. That was only last week, and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing, and the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data and my spirit with pleadings, but he didn't return. I tell you, I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds, and he was in mine. Brains are private places, muttering through unique and secret tapes. But the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular, but I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity, and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked, and ingested directly like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, even of silence, by choice. The thing to do, the thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient And pure to grasp your one single, your one necessity and not let it go. Dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Then, even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds. Let your very bones unhinge and scatter, loosened over fields, over fields and woods lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. In light of samvega, it feels appropriate to share some of the Buddha's last words just before his death, words offered to his monastic and lay disciples to instill a sense of samvega in them, to exhort them to keep going along the path. And this particular quote is from a somewhat expanded version of these words that come from the Tibetan translation of the Parinibbana Sutta. And I found it to be quite inspiring. O bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent, are of a nature to decay, Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled, for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precarious. Always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether moving or not moving, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now. Do not speak. Time is passing. I am about to cross over. This is my final teaching. And in closing the talk this evening, we come right back around to our opening questions as Mary Oliver in her own way poses them in her poem called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper wild and precious life. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. And thank you for listening to the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.